0: This too is God's word. And finally our gospel, a lesson for today from Luke chapter 18. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is God's word. That's really an interesting account, isn't it? An interesting parable uh, that Jesus speaks there. You know, whenever you hear these words, two men... Two men went up. You can bet that there's probably some type of a competition going on, right? Or comparison. I I, I think whenever you put two people in the same room, doesn't even have to be men, uh, if you put two people in the same room, there's, there's going to be some type of comparison. Or you put two things into a conversation and you're going to compare them. And that's not necessarily wrong, right? It wasn't wrong if you sat here before service tonight and you compared the soups. Do I like this one or do I like that one or do you like that one? Or it's not necessarily wrong to say, you know what, I'm, I'm taller or I'm shorter or I'm, I'm bigger or you're smaller or, or you know, she's old, or Maybe you don't say she's older, right? Uh, but it's not necessarily wrong to make comparisons. I mean, you think about how often throughout the day it's just part of life. Before you came to worship tonight, some of you went into your closet and you said, well, should I wear this or should I wear that? That was a comparison uh, that you made. You you drove here and you got into the parking lot and you compared the open spots. Where should I park my car? And you made that decision. You walked in here and you compared, oh, look, the the chairs are different than they, they have been for the last year. And so you were comparing what they were today from what they were a year ago. Or, or then when you saw where they, you compared, well, should I sit here? Or should I sit here? Should I sit there? Or should I sit there? You, you made conscience decisions based on comparison. So, so let's not think that comparisons in and of themselves are bad. They're not, you didn't sin by saying you liked one soup versus the other. Or by picking one chair over, over the other. But where comparisons become a problem is when comparisons become the rule of approval. And that's where this Pharisee, uh, who was kind of the religious, very good person, morally upright, religious, knew his Bible, knew the promises of the Old Testament frontwards and backwards and inside out. But... He started to use this comparison thing as his standard for approval. As he said, God, and that's about the last time you hear God mentioned in that prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not like blank. And then he starts listing all the comparisons. God, I thank you that I'm not like the robbers. They're the ones who take. I'm the one who gives. I'm the one who gives a tenth of everything that I get. God, I thank you that I'm not like the evildoers. You know, they're the ones that are always breaking your law. Me, on the other hand, I'm the one that's always keeping your law. You say, and not only am I just keeping it, I'm I'm doing better, I'm doing more than you expected. You say jump, I say how high? You say fast once a week, I do it twice a week. Right. Uh, God, thank you that I'm not like those adulterers, those sexually immoral people. God, thank you that I'm not even like the other worshipers in this room, that I'm not even like this tax collector. That's important to remember. Where were they? They're in the temple. So they're all, they're all worshiping. And yet he says, God... I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. See, his standard was that he he really thought he was good on a, a comparison based on behavior. How do I match up according to that person or to this person? Now, before we come down too hard on the Pharisee, what was going through your mind as I read that lesson earlier or as I was just talking about the Pharisee right now? I think if we're completely honest, we're saying, God, I thank you, I'm not like that Pharisee. Right? That, yeah, I may, I may compare myself to others and judge others from time to time. But at least I don't do it as much as that Pharisee. Ironic, isn't it? That we're so pharisaical ourselves that we look down on the Pharisee. Like the Pharisee, it, it becomes a, a very easy thing to do. We forget of the standards that God has in place. The standards that God has in place it has, has nothing to do with, with how we compare to anybody else. But the standards that God has in place is how we compare it to him. And that's something, that's something that this other guy, this publican, this tax collector, demonstrated that he had a very good handle on. I mean, you you look at at what he says here. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Allow me just to share a little bit of insight about his prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, It's horrible English, and this is why I checked the top six English translations. This is why they don't do it. Um, It's horrible English, but it's, it's great theology. What this publican, what this tax collector prays, technically isn't, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's good English. And so for communication purposes, that's what all the translations put. But if you look in the original language of the Bible, he actually says, God have mercy on me, the sinner, which sounds weird, but it really demonstrates Jesus' point. See, when he says, I'm the sinner, he's, he's not at all concerned about anybody else. If I just simply say, I'm a sinner, what does that mean? If I say, I'm a sinner, I'm saying, oh yeah, I'm admitting I do not... Follow God's law completely. I, I miss the mark uh, when it comes to, to doing God's law perfectly. God says, do this and I don't. God says, don't do that and I do. But as soon as I say that word, a sinner, while I'm admitting my own fault, what am I also kind of inferring? I'm inferring that, well, I'm not the only one, I'm just a sinner. Just like you are a sinner, and you are a sinner, and you are a sinner. We are a bunch of sinners. But as soon as you say, I am the sinner, now it's not so much talking about how I match up to anybody else. It's just, God, here we are. It's you and me, God. And here's your perfect law. And sure enough, you got me. I'm the sinner. You're not. It doesn't matter if I'm better than the Pharisee. It doesn't matter about the robber. It doesn't matter about the evildoer. It doesn't matter about the adulterer. It's just you and me. And isn't that really what Lent or Ash Wednesday is all about? You aren't here tonight to just be lumped in with a bunch of other sinners eating a dinner and sitting in these chairs. You are here, I am here, to be confronted by my sin and to confess my sin. And you are here to be confronted by your sin and to confess your sin. Very personal. God, as I stand before you, I'm the sinner, and you are not. And yet, that's not the only reason that you and I came today. Yes, it's Ash Wednesday. Yes, that's a a big part of the theme. But that's not the only reason you came. You didn't just come to be confronted or to confess your sin, and it wasn't the only reason that that tax collector, that that publican went into that temple that day. I mean, just again, look at how it says there. It says, he went to the temple to pray. That's a rather important detail that, God, that Jesus starts with with his parable. The temple. He could have just said, oh yeah, two guys went into the backyard and one guy said this and one guy said that. Or, or two guys went on to, into a street corner, and, and one guy did this, and one guy did that. Or, you know, and, but he doesn't. He says, no, they went to the temple. Why? What is the temple there for? The temple is, and this is a little bit of a repeat. I know many of you were able to worship with us last week, and I talked about a little bit of how the temple was laid out. And it's important to think about that in context of this parable. So the the temple, their church, really had two rooms. You had a big room, uh, which was called the Holy Place. And then there was a second room, which was called the Most Holy Place, or sometimes called the Holy of Holies. And in that back room, the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies place, uh, stood this thing. There was this big box called the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, That was meant to to be a, a visible symbol of God's presence among among his people and and inside that box were these artifacts one of which was the 10 commandments which was God's way of reminding them that you know what the you cannot you the only way that you can approach God is if you follow his standards it's not a it's not a comparison thing it's not a by ranking or classes or by percentiles. He says, how have you held up to my law? And if you've held up to my law, boom, you can approach me. But if you remember what I said on Sunday, there wasn't anybody that could do that. In fact, there was a huge curtain between those two rooms preventing it from happening. Curtain that went 60 feet high wall to wall, 30 feet wide, and it's about as thick as your hand. Again, God's way of saying, you don't meet my standards. You can't come into my presence. Except. Except once a year, God said, this is what I'll do. I'll let someone come in on behalf of you if you follow my rules. The day was called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, if you've ever seen it on your calendars. Uh, Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement involved this, that God said, okay, here's a, a high priest that I'm going to pick. And he can come behind the curtain. He can approach God on this day, but he can't just waltz in there. If he just waltzes in like he doesn't follow what I say. He's going to die. In fact, they used to tie a rope around him just in case he went in the wrong way so that they could pull him out and, and so that nobody else would die going in and getting him. And so, so God said, this is what you have to do. So he wakes up in the morning and he takes, his, uh, takes a, a ceremonial bath. He bathes and then he puts on uh, the, the, the sacred garments, the, the garments set aside just for this day. You know, similar to like a, you think of a wedding day on a a wedding day, a bride doesn't go into her closet and say, oh, what dress should I wear today, right? No, she, she has clothes set aside for that special occasion. So did the high priest. That's step one. Then step two, he has to sacrifice a bull out there in the courtyard. And then he has to bring that blood in, and he has to pour it onto the Ark of the Covenant. And that, that was for his sin and for the sin of his family. And so you've been, you've been washed, you've put on the right garments, you've, been, you've made a sacrifice for you and for your family. Now, now you can start to represent other people. And so after he pours the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, that one at first, then he, now he goes back into the courtyard, now there's two goats there. And they take one of those goats, and they sacrifice it, and they take the blood, and they take it in and they pour it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he goes back out, and he goes to that second goat, and he puts his hands on it, and as a way to symbolically transfer all of the people's sins onto that goat, and then they let it go. It becomes the scapegoat, and they release it into the w- in the wilderness, as far as the east is from the west. So far, have your sins been removed from you? And it just you see your sins run away. But notice the order. Before your sins run away, payment first has to be made. And you say, what in all the world does that have to do with the parable of the Pharisee and the publican? If I read Luke chapter 18 again, you're not going to hear anything about goats, you're not going to hear anything about garments. You're not going to hear anything about curtains. You're not going to hear anything about a covenant or an ark of the covenant. But it's there. It's there in the prayer of the publican. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That word of mercy, there's a few... different ways that mercy is used in the Bible. But the word that is used for mercy here is the same word, and it's only used a few times, to describe that. That top part, where all the blood gets poured, it's called the atonement cover, or it's called the mercy seat of God. And so now here you have this publican, this tax collector, staring, well, he's staring at the ground, but he's in the shadows of this this big curtain. And he knows, God, I can't approach you. I have nothing that I could offer to pour onto that mercy seat. Do you have it, God? God, have mercy. You know, it's kind of like if you're checking out at, at... at, at the grocery store and you, you, you find yourself that you have no money in your pocket, you forgot your wallet, you know, and you say, you know, have a dollar. That's what this, Pharise- uh, this publican is saying. He said, I don't have anything to offer. It has to be from outside of me. Uh, as opposed to this Pharisee who thought he could, he could earn God's favor by his own merit the publican understood he had no merits by which he could earn God's favor and so he prays God I don't have it so you you have mercy you pour out mercy for me and that's what Jesus did You look at some of the other passages of the New Testament. You you jump ahead to the book of Hebrews, for example. And it explains, uses the same terminology there. And it says very beautifully, you know what? This is why Jesus came. He came to become fully human. Just like us. To become the sinner. But then he also came to be that high priest. That merciful. Full high priest is what it says in Hebrews 2. The, the high priest who, has, who is full of mercy, who has all the payments in his arms. And he's able to give it. He becomes the payer. But what's so neat about Jesus, he's, he's also the payment. As he poured out his blood on the mercy seat of the cross, which he did, so that you and I, you and I could could go home tonight, just like that publican could go home that day, declared not guilty, justified, because Jesus had paid it all. That's what Lent's about. You know, over the next five weeks, we're going to look at the passion, according to a publican. As I mentioned before this service, we're going to be looking at the suffering and the life of Jesus, the payment that he made, as shared by this guy by the name of Matthew, who, before Jesus called him to be his disciples, was just that, a publican. But it's my prayer tonight that you don't just observe Lent or watch or see the passion according to a publican but that you see the passion of Jesus as this publican. See the passion of Jesus as God's payment of mercy for you and for me. See that Ash Wednesday and And Lent isn't just about repentance. Oh, I'm not downplaying repentance. There's so much value to being able to to reflect on our own sin, to see the seriousness of our sin. But Lent's so much more than repentance. First and foremost, it's about remittance. That Jesus gave this payment for you and for me. And so, like he did for this publican, May our Lord just simply lift our eyes. Lift our eyes away from ourselves and to the cross these next six weeks. And as our eyes are there, then, then and only then, will we be exalted. Amen.